Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The FT. The next phase of Help to Buy launches next week, but will Britain's lenders support it? As millions more people join a pension scheme under auto-enrolment, how should they make the most of their savings? and why some index tracking funds no longer look quite so cheap. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, Tanya Poli. Hello. Elaine Moore. Hello. Joe Cumbo. Hello. And joining us on the phone, Laith Culloff of Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hello. The party political conference season has just ended, and the centrepiece announcement at the Conservatives gathering in Manchester this week was that phase two of the government's controversial help-to-buy scheme will launch next week, instead of in January as originally planned. The first phase of help-to-buy, which has been operating since April, allows first-time buyers to borrow part of the money they need to buy a property from the government. The second stage is open to most home buyers, not just those buying for the first time. It entails the government guaranteeing a portion of the loan on higher loan-to-value mortgages in return for the lenders paying a fee. The idea is that lenders will be more willing to extend credit to buyers with small deposits if they know that the government is standing behind part of the loan. However, help to buy part two is dependent on the mortgage lenders cooperating, and it's not clear yet whether that will happen. Tanya Poli has been reporting on Help to Buy since it launched. Tanya, the government wants lenders to play ball with Help to Buy, but is there any sign of them yet doing so? So far, all we've had is the two sort of partly state-backed lenders, Lloyds Banking Group and Royal Bank of Scotland, actually confirm that they are going to sign up and that they're committed to the scheme and that they will be launching products from next week when the scheme actually goes live. When it comes to actually other lenders, that's where it becomes a bit more patchy. So far, most of the big banks have kind of expressed certain misgivings about the schemes. I think a few of them are a bit concerned about the fact that we're talking about high loan-to-value ratios here. We also don't know a lot of the final details of the scheme because even though the government made this big announcement at the Conservative Party conference, it actually hasn't published the final details of what commercial fees banks will be charged and exactly how the scheme will work. So I think a lot of the big banks and building societies are just a bit nervous. They don't really want to commit until they actually know the full details. So we're still waiting for quite a few of the other banks and building societies to give a nod either way, really. Okay. And critics say, well, do we really need more 95% mortgages? Aren't these the things that 
caused all the problems in the first place. And according to MoneyFacts, there are already over 50 products to choose from for people with small deposits. Why do we need the government to put up guarantees so we can have more? Well, that's probably like central to the, the debate around this phase two of the Help to Buy scheme. I mean, yeah, it's fair to say that obviously there are 50 products for borrowers with only a 5% deposit at the moment. But I think when you go back to, say, the peak of the market in 2007, there were actually around 900 product choice for people with only 5% deposit. So there is a big change in how the market used to be pre-credit crisis to now. But obviously central to that debate is, do we actually want to return to what the market was at the peak of the housing boom? Obviously, we saw this crash afterwards. A lot of banks have actually pulled out of these sort of higher loan-to-value area because they do deem them more risky. They are more risky. There's like lots of evidence to show that actually borrowers with smaller deposits are more likely to default on their loans. And we've obviously had new mortgage regulation coming where the whole point of that regulation is to kind of prevent this return to risky lending. But what we've got the government now is actually saying they actually want to go back to higher loan-to-value lending. So there's a, there's a lot of like sort of debates here going on about what's the right thing to do. And assuming all the questions about the fees and the guarantees get sorted out and the scheme goes ahead and the banks participate, does that mean that people with small deposits will just be able to sort of saunter into their local bank and get a loan very easily as they as they did maybe during the peak of the market? No, definitely not. The government's obviously trying to push the fact that this scheme will boost the number of 95% loan-to-value products and just general higher loan-to-value products out there. But it has also gone to pains to say that actually these borrowers will be subject to tough criteria from the banks. It won't be available to people who have bad credit history. So people with CCJs and that kind of stuff, they won't actually be able to have access to a scheme. You're still going to have to be able to prove that you can afford it. You can only take it out on a repayment basis, so you won't be able to take it out on an interest-only basis that a lot of first-time buyers used to take out their mortgage loans that way. So it isn't a case that it will just be an open free-for-all that everyone can go and get a 95% mortgage. Definitely not. Okay, and finally, as I mentioned, Help to Buy has been quite controversial. Many critics say it will inflate prices without actually increasing supply. What's the evidence um, for and against that so far? I mean, we've had uh, several months now of Help to Buy Part 1. What we've seen is basically actually house prices have been recovering uh, recently. They're as much as 10% up in London. Across the UK, they're not so much going up. So I think that's the big debate about what will happen to house prices when when this scheme comes in, because the part one of the scheme is actually it's kind of more likely to actually help boost the supply of property coming onto the market because it's actually aimed at the new build market. So it's obviously encouraging house builders to kind of build more homes while this scheme is only for kind of it's for the resale market for new build as well and there's less evidence that that's actually going to have a direct impact on house building numbers thank you tanya and there's more on help to buy too and how the scheme works in this weekend's ft money and of course on ft.com still to come on the show why some index tracking funds are not quite the cheap alternative they seem but first let's take a look at pensions This week marked the first anniversary of auto-enrolment. That's the law making it compulsory for employers to automatically enrol their employees in a pension scheme to which both contribute. So far, only the largest companies have had to auto-enrol, and most of them already offered pension schemes to their workers. But over the coming months and years, thousands of smaller and medium-sized companies will also be obliged to auto-enrol. And that means many people who might not have saved into a pension before are set to start doing so. They may have little understanding of the choices available to them and financial advice is unlikely to be affordable for those saving smaller amounts. So who looks after these new pension savers? Who makes sure that any charges they pay are reasonable? And who ensures that their employers don't welch on their responsibilities? 
broadly speaking? The answer is that they do. Joe Cumbo has been investigating. Joe, can you start by reminding us why it's so important that employees know how their pension schemes work and how they're invested? What the government wants us to do, and in greater numbers, is save for retirement over the period of our lifetimes in the workplace. Now, gone are the days where you could just expect to have deductions from your salary and at the end of 20 or 30 years, uh, a pension, a good, comfortable pension, would be spat out by your employer and they'd continue to pay you. Those were the days of the final salary pensions. Those days are pretty much over and done. And what we have nowadays is a type of pension known as the defined contribution pension, where the employee, not the employer, takes the risk for making sure that their pension continues to grow and will deliver them an income at the end of the day. But these new schemes, which are are set up now and millions of people will be enrolled into, there is little evidence that people are getting engaged with their pension choices, which can lead to, to big problems at the end of saving if you don't have enough money. And here to discuss these issues with me is Laith Callef from Hargreaves Lansdowne. Laith, can I just start by asking you to explain how saving in the workplace differs from saving into a personal pension? Sure thing. I think there are, there are three main differences. The first one being that within a workplace, your your employer actually makes a contribution to the pension, or, or certainly will have to once auto-enrolment has gone through to, to 2018. And that's obviously something that's attractive for workers. However, you also have less control over the scheme that's in place because it's chosen by your employer. So you can't just go and choose your own product. That is something that's put in place for you. And the third difference is that there will be a default fund that is also chosen for you. You don't have to invest in that, but if you don't make any choice, then that's where your money will go. So the employer does make key decisions about the pension. How much say would I have in those arrangements, for example? It depends how much your employer is willing to uh, allow you and how much you are willing to to engage yourself. So with many modern pension arrangements, they are pretty flexible. And most employers will be choosing a flexible pension for auto-enrolment. And that being the case, there is quite a wide degree of choice that you can exercise, but you do then have to go uh, and make those choices. So at a group level, the employer has to make certain decisions on which pension scheme to offer, who that's going to be with, and what the default fund is going to be but within that there are probably a lot of choices that you can make yourself. What if I was unhappy with the charges for example that I was levied with or even the the range of investments that the employer had chosen on my behalf what could I do could I exert any influence over them to to make changes? Yeah I mean I think it probably depends on what kind of company you work for but certainly you can make your feelings known to the decision makers and probably for most companies that's going to be someone in, in the HR department. I mean, the reality is that in terms of in terms of costs, a lot of the, the group pension products that are out there at the moment are already pretty low cost. Some of them maybe don't have as, as great an investment choice as, as others. Uh, and if you feel you need a bit more, I think it's it's perfectly all right for you to make those, those comments known to the decision makers within your company. The OFT, the Office of Fair Trading, recently highlighted some pretty significant issues with the way many pension schemes are run by employers and trustees on our behalf, including high charges and uh, and trustees who aren't doing their jobs properly. How would I know if I'm in one of these poor value schemes? 
Well, the, the OFT highlighted two, two main areas of concern, small trust-based schemes and also schemes that were written pre-2001. So if you're in a, in a scheme which falls into either of those categories, the OFT thinks that you are probably more at risk of being in a poor can you just scheme. Can yep. you just explain the trust-based, what that, what that means? Yeah, so a trust-based scheme is an older form of arrangement which isn't really being written at the moment, but it's basically a scheme whereby the employer takes on a fiduciary duty, a legal obligation to look after you and look after your best interests. And often that means that they have discretion over the investment management of your plan and that leaves you with fewer your choices, which is why most schemes are now written on what's called a contract-based basis, which means that there is a contract between the individual and the pension provider, normally an insurance company, and the employer provides a sort of governance role, but ultimately it's an individual personal pension with an employer making a contribution and also supervising what's going on. Given that there still are some big issues that need to be sorted out by insurers and employers about the way our schemes are run, is it worth continuing or even beginning to save in workplace pensions? Are they fit for purpose? Yeah, I think that the focus of the OFT was really on older pension plans and I don't think there's much suggestion that pension plans being written now are not generally good value they're one of the lowest cost products on the market in fact in terms of whether you should save into one again even the OFT recognizes that saving into workplace pension is a very attractive form of saving because for each pound you put in normally your employer puts a pound in as well and the government pays in as well thank you very much Leith thank you you were listening to the FT's Joe Cumbo and Leith Culloff of Hargreaves Lansdowne You can read lots more about how to get the best from your pension and why those charges are so important in this weekend's FT Money. If you can't get to a newsagent this weekend, you can read FT Money via the FT's tablet apps on Kindles and online at www.ft.com forward slash money. If you want to leave comments, you can do so online or email us. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today, which is also about charges. For years, the main selling point of passive or index tracking funds has been their low costs. The reasoning goes like this. Why pay a fund manager, who is unlikely to beat his or her benchmark index anyway, when for half the price you could have near enough the performance of the index itself? That might once have been true, but the cost of actively managed funds is falling because the city regulator has banned fund providers from paying commission to financial advisers, and in April next year it will ban payments to distribution platforms as well. As annual management charges tumble, some index trackers and exchange-traded funds are starting to look rather less of a bargain. Elaine Moore has been finding out more. Elaine, what difference has the ban on commission payments made to costs in the open-ended funds industry? Have they come down a little bit or by quite a lot? Well, I think maybe the first thing to say is that it's quite difficult to work out what the changes have been. We work on the money section of the FT, so you would think that we've been in a good position to know straight where to go to find these kinds of charges, and I've been looking at this this week, and it's confusing and it takes a long time and the charges are not flagged up in the way that perhaps they should be. So for an ordinary investor who might have a lot of different funds in their portfolio, I would think that it's fairly difficult to know exactly what they're paying on each different 
different investment that they hold, saying that this is all part of the retail distribution review, the supposed making investments more transparent so that you know exactly what you're paying to your advisor, what you're paying to the fund provider. What that's meant is that in the past, commission fees to advisors were all wrapped up into the same annual charge that you would pay to a fund. That's now been stopped. So supposedly you now know exactly how much you pay to both sides, which makes the fund fee look significantly lower. Because there is this transparency, there is a little bit more competition between the funds to bring the fees down. But that hasn't really happened as much as people thought, probably because it's still quite difficult to know how much you're paying. And did index tracking funds pay commission too? And what about exchange-traded funds, which do a similar thing? So they didn't. This is quite a different thing and uh, is perhaps one of the reasons that not very many people used to invest in these sorts of funds. They weren't promoted as stridently by advisors as those funds that paid commission to the advisors. And ETFs as well, this is a sort of growing area. The charges are even lower. You can invest in quite a wide range of interesting things via ETFs and you'll be paying 30 basis points, perhaps even lower. And following these changes, so fees on actively managed funds, so far as we can see what they are, have come down. Is it possible now that an investor could actually be paying more for a fund that just tracks the index than for one where there's a fund manager busy doing research and picking shares? It's quite strange, isn't it? Because you would expect that if you're paying the fund manager to actively manage a fund, you've got to pay their fees, you pay for the research team, you'd expect to pay a little bit more for that. What's quite interesting is that there are some tracker funds out there that are charged surprisingly high annual management fee. So Halifax, for example, for its FTSE All Share Tracker, that's got a 1% annual management charge. I spoke to Halifax, I've spoken to quite a lot of advisors, I cannot find a good reason for that to be the case. People I've spoken to have said, if you're investing in a tracker fund that's following a major index, so like the FTSE 100, FTSE All Share, you should be paying no more than 0.3%. So that being the case, how are they getting away with this? And presumably, are the providers of index tracking products now having to respond to charges coming down elsewhere? Some of the advisors that I spoke to who specialise in this area said that they could think of no other reason for this than just brand name. For a lot of advisors, the trust that they place in a provider of a fund eclipses everything else. So if it's a very well-known name, they will be willing to pay more for that investment, perhaps because they don't realise that there are better deals out there. Whether they will have to bring things down, I mean, there's more people investing in um, tracker funds, so perhaps there'll be a bit more education out there about the amount that it should cost. Trackers have already come down in cost quite a lot. This began in 2005. Fidelity took a knife to its charges and they came right down. Some of the largest providers, that's Vanguard, HSBC, Legal in general, they'll only charge 0.3% for FTSE All Share Tracker. So it's hard to see how much lower they can come down from that. You also need to remember that if you you're going to do this directly, you will have to pay the fund supermarket. They are not stupid. They know that more people are investing in trackers, which are lower cost, and they've started to introduce these minimum fees, so say £2 a month, if you're going to be investing in a passive investment. Thank you very much, Elaine. There's more on who charges what for passive funds in this week's FT Money. Other highlights in the latest issue, US money manager Ken Fisher on why the government shutdown in the US doesn't actually matter that much, what the government's new tenants charter means for landlords, and if you've always wanted to set up your own business, we've a guide on how to get started.
That's it for this week, but in the meantime, don't forget that you can read money articles all week on our website, ft.com forward slash money, where you can also find blog posts, readers' comments, and a whole range of useful calculators and tools. But until next week, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Tanya, Joe, Elaine, and our special guest, Blaith Kalaf. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.